welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, no longer managing editor of Velo News. This is episode 86. I'm joined today by Trevor Connor, as always. Coach Connor, welcome. Trevor, you're sitting next to me today. We are not in distant lands. We're not in dif- distant rooms. We're actually face to face. It's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a long time. You were in Italy, then I went down to Tobago and to Disney World, which Oof. Chris was so excited Ooh, to hear about that. We won't even get into it. We will not get into it. We've had many discussions about it, but we won't today. So today's episode is going to be a good old-fashioned Q&A session with Trevor and I. I'll be asking the questions, of course. He'll be doing most of the answering. We haven't done one of these in a long time. So if there's anything I've learned, Q&A is a code word for... We don't have our stuff together, so let's throw an episode together really quick. No, man. We have so many good questions coming in from listeners. A lot of the time, Trevor is answering those questions for people in emails, uh, and it's really good content, and I think that the way he answers the questions for one person can apply to a lot of people out there. So this is great stuff. Got a range of really good questions today. It also allows us to get back in the groove of recording just the two of us and getting back to our roots in a way. And we have several interesting, profound announcements, fascinating, exciting stuff. Yeah, so I kind of brought that up because there is a bit of a, we got to get our stuff together, but there is a reason for that. And and we felt like this is a good opportunity to explain to everybody what's going on. And first thing, as, as Chris said, he is no longer managing editor at Velo News. Something that was going on behind the scenes that might have come out a little bit in our shows, but we haven't really talked about was the fact that starting back in late July, I knew Chris was leaving Velo News. We thought he was moving on to other things. So we had several episodes there where I was actually quite sad thinking well this is our second to last fast talk episode and this is our last fast talk episode and and there was a period of time there where we thought it was coming to an end but it didn't what's interesting though is for a while there we weren't sure fast talk was going to live and now what has happened is the two of us have turned it 180 degrees from that and we're actually We've formed a company called Fast Labs, and we're going to be offering more stuff. Hopefully, the audio quality will improve. The The content quality of Fast Talk will get even better than it is now. And you're going to see those changes take place over the next several episodes. It won't be an immediate thing. But yeah, we're both really excited that from the ashes... Not really from the ashes, but close to the a- from the ashes. Fast Talk has risen onto bigger and better things with Fast Talk and Fast Labs. So what's potentially exciting is up until now, this show has in some ways been a side project for us. It's, it's what we do in the evenings. Uh, literally the editing, and we've certainly gotten some feedback on the editing, has been me sitting there with audacity, mostly hitting... The, the various buttons going, hey, what does that do? That sounds like a really bad way to edit. 
Not a good way. <laughs> hey, what's this thing do? Oh, wow. What does that button do? So these are all things now that this has gone from something that we do when we can to we're going to try to make a, a true business out of this. We're hoping we can step up the quality. We hope there's a lot more that we can offer to you in the, the coming months. So once we catch up, because as of a few weeks ago, we actually thought we were doing our final episodes. But then what's exciting to us is what we could potentially do and what we could potentially offer all of you. But so, Chris, this has to be a little bit scary for you that now this, this, is, this is the full-time job. Yeah, you know, it, it presents both challenges and opportunities. It's a, it's not a side project. It's the real thing. It's, uh, it's my, it's a business. <laughs> um, and that's, that's got its challenges, like we said, but it's also got opportunities. If, uh, nothing else, we get so much out of our listeners, the feedback we hear from them, the questions they ask, the emails they write. We want more of that. We want to be informed by them, and that's why we've put, in, put together a, a survey. This has gone out to maybe 100, 150 listeners already, but we want to really expand it and get much more feedback. The address, fastlabs.com slash survey. So what is in this survey? Well, it's everything from tell us how you listen to Fast Talk, uh, where you listen to it, what you like about it, what you don't like about it. But what we're also looking for is more information on what other types of offerings you'd like because we want to expand this. That's the opportunity component here. We want to, should we have one on running, triathlon? Uh, should we bring our guests, some of our most popular guests on more often? Should we give them their own uh, show in a sense? A lot of these things is what we want to we want to learn more from our listeners. So in essence, the survey is just a great opportunity for all of you out there to tell us exactly what you want, what we do right, what we do wrong. We do a lot of things wrong. We want to improve. We know that. And it also has a, a big component of asking for your feedback on Fast Labs camps, these performance training camps that we want to offer in collaboration with the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center. We are working on those camps as we speak, but we need your help in informing us what they should be, where you'd like to stay, those types of things. So please go and, and fill out our survey. Again, it's fastlabs.com survey. And please don't judge us by our website. We registered that domain, what, a week ago? We're still just working on a logo. So literally our webpage right now is just a link to that survey. It is indeed. So pro, as they say. Hashtag so pro. And with that, let's get into some questions, Trevor. Shall we? Well, let's get into the questions, shall we? This first question comes from Elliot Cherish, who has a really fascinating question about breathing, respiration, and heart rate, and the relationship between the two. And I know Trevor is just chomping at the bit to answer this question because it's one of his favorite subjects in all of physiology. So Elliot writes in, Elliot Cherish writes in, 
I've noticed recently that during hard efforts, especially when racing, my breathing feels less labored at a given heart rate than it has in the past. So for example, at 185 beats per minute, I don't feel like I'm breathing as hard as I'd expect to at that rate. I'm definitely fitter than I've been in prior seasons, but it seems to me there should be a pretty direct relationship between breathing rate and heart rate as the heart is beating faster to meet increased oxygen demand. If my body needed less oxygen for the given power output, shouldn't my heart rate also be lower? Do you know of a physiological explanation for this, or is it just in my head? I absolutely love this question. <laughs> I still wanted to answer this question. We are getting at one of my absolute favorite things in, in physiology. Uh, first of all, I'll, I'll quickly address this final question. Yes, I do think perception was part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, he talked about his race fitness being different and... When you are on race form, your biochemistry is a little bit different. Pain feels different. So it just doesn't feel as labored. So mm -hmm. I do think that was a factor. But now let's address the breathing. And I'm going to go on a big tangent here, but that's because I absolutely love this. <laughs> this is a question I asked myself when I was taking my first exercise physiology course that I was obsessed with, obsessed with for years, which is this... When, you, when you're trying to define what is fitness, there's that picture of you have two riders who are the same weight riding side by side. One is an elite Tour de France level cyclist. The other person just started riding a bike a couple months ago and is completely out of shape. And you see them, the Tour de France rider is sitting there nose breathing while the other rider is mouth wide open panting. Right. Even yep. though they're putting out the same power. Right. Why is that? I've been, I was fascinated with that because that was raised in one of my physiology classes. And we realized from a, a physiology standpoint, that's a harder question to answer than you would think it is. Mm. And I'll give you some of the reasons why. First, when you look at it from a biochemistry standpoint, in order to produce that wattage, we are burning fats and carbohydrates. When you're burning them aerobically, at the end of it, oxygen is used to basically get rid of the, the waste product. So that's, that's uh, you need oxygen to fully metabolize fats and carbohydrates. That is a biochemical process that requires the exact same amount of oxygen in that elite Tour de France athlete and the completely out of shape person. Mm. So you want to completely oxidize a, a mole of fat, requires the same amount of oxygen. Mm -hmm. So then you say, well, then is the unfit person just doing that much more work? Then you're getting into efficiency. Yes. The internal work to produce the wattage is going to be a little more in that unfit person. But they've shown the range of human efficiency on the bike, and it's actually a very, very tight range. Mm. It is not enough to explain the one person nose breathing, the other person panting. Mm -hmm. Third thing to understand is, Humans, uh, along with pronghorns, are two of the only animals that they might actually, I think they are the only two animals on the planet that have overbuilt lungs. Mm -hmm. We actually never have a problem getting enough oxygen. That's kind of like, when you go to very high altitudes, you do. Sure. But for the most part, we actually don't have a problem getting enough oxygen. So what all this means is the person panting and the person nose breathing are putting out the same wattage. Oxygen consumption doesn't explain that. So what does explain that? Mm -hmm. and, and this is what, what I absolutely love. The reason we breathe really hard when we're going hard is not to take in enough oxygen. 
Mm-hmm. I think I have actually explained this before, but I just love it so much. So <laughs> I know where again. I know where this is you, going. You know, I, you, I'm you read the article. I'm waiting the, for the punchline here. We are breathing really hard to exhale carbon dioxide. Yes, that's it. When you are going really hard, you are producing a lot of acid. Your body needs to buffer that acid. Its immediate way of buffering is with something called bicarbonate. When bicarbonate is used to buffer acid, a byproduct is carbon dioxide. In order to maintain your ability to buffer acid, you need to get rid of that carbon dioxide. So when you are going hard and producing all that acid, you need to breathe harder to get rid of carbon dioxide. Going back to our elite athlete beside the the unfit Mm -hmm. novice cyclist, that elite athlete, what they have developed is amazing abilities to stay in homeostasis. So even when they're going really hard, they aren't producing nearly as much acid. Mm -hmm. And when they are producing acid, because of capillary density and a whole bunch of other factors, they're able to move that, shuttle that acid to other tissues in the body where it can be managed and handled. They have, so basically, uh, I'm not going to dive too deep into the physiology, but basically they produce less acid. They have a much better ability to buffer manage that acid besides just the the bicarbonate so they just don't need to breathe as hard where that very unfit person is going to start producing a lot of acid very quickly with very limited ability to manage it to shuttle it to other tissues all the other ways that we we manage it so the only option they have is to start panting like panting like a dog yes all right our next question comes from a listener that doesn't actually want to be named The question is, or the context of the question, is that this particular individual had a combination of illness, work projects, uh, school things going on in his life that were interrupting his his, uh, training and, and performance. But despite being far fitter than he was the previous year, he ended up overtrained shortly before Redlands, which is a pretty big cycling race out there for amateurs still to this day. And he put on about six and a half kilos. By the time I realized I was overtrained, he says, both the Tour de Beauce up in Canada was just around the corner and I never managed to properly recover. With regards to being overtrained, rest is obviously the solution. But are there any signs when it's time to get back on the bike, he asks. Trevor, what do you think? Big sigh from Trevor. (laughs) <laughs> More just thinking about, uh, let, let's put it this way. At some point, we really have to do an episode on burnout. Uh, burnout is a remarkably complex subject. Scientifically, it is very complex. And it's also very hard to understand and very hard to study. There is that issue of, in scientific research, ethically, you can do no damage. You can't harm your subjects. Burnout, by definition, is doing harm. So you can't conduct a study where you you say, we are going to intentionally burn you out. Though I I will actually, in my explanation here, uh, in a minute, give an an exception to that. So I'm just going to start by saying, at some point, we will do a a deeper dive into the science of burnout, but that's not for today in in a a Q&A. Right. So what I'm going to do is give you the way little higher level way of thinking about the way I I always think about it. When you talk about training adaptations, we have adaptations that are structural. We have adaptations that are biochemical. 
So when you talk about structural, you're thinking about things like increasing capillary density. Uh, we're talking about increases in the size of the left ventricle of the heart. These are structural changes that take a long time, but once you have them, they tend to stick around. Biochemical changes are things like increase in your blood volume, changes in particular cytokines or particular markers that allow you in a very short run to adapt to the training stress and, and get stronger. Where the structural changes take a long time but stick around, those biochemical changes, think of them as that is a, almost an emergency response. I don't want to go, go that strong, but that is a very acute response of your body that is in some ways takes your body out of homeostasis. Your body's saying, okay, I know you need to perform better right now, so we're going to do this, but this actually in ways gets me out of balance. So those biochemical changes are by nature temporary. At some point, your body's going to say, that's enough. Mm -hmm. Stop this. I need to get back into balance. And that's how I think of overtraining or, or burnout. Um, Dr. Seiler did a fascinating study with this on what's called autonomic stress and pointed out that really autonomic stress is associated with burnout. You really only see autonomic stress when you do high-intensity work. For those who don't know, Dr. Seiler is Trevor's favorite researcher of all time in the history of the world. We did call him the Jay-Z. He is the Jay-Z, and <laughs> we've, done, we've done some episodes with him, so please reference those. They're great episodes. So again, I'm giving the, the high-level view of this, but... The short of it, and so the, I did say there was actually a study that they conducted on burnout. I went, this, this, I, I'm blanking on his name, but the researcher who did this study was the keynote at a conference I went to. And they managed to get approval to do a study where they tried to burn out cyclists. Mm. So they took semi-professional cyclists and for a month had them ride 100 miles a day. And none of them burned out. Mm. Unfortunately, in his keynote, he kind of said, well, I'm not sure burnout fully exists, which I think is completely the wrong <laughs> yeah, conclusion. That's, that's dangerous. The, the better conclusion was you were feeding them food. They were getting lots of sleep. Every other aspect of their life was taken care of, so they're getting plenty of rest. The other thing was they were just doing long, steady rides. They weren't doing a lot of high intensity. So That still sounds brutal. A month, you said, of 100 miles every day? Yeah. Wow. You know, they were tired. They were certainly tired, but yeah. none of them hit what they would call clinical burnout. Sure. So the point that I'm trying to make is is when you do the structural work, which is mostly your, your base style training, um, it is very, very hard to burn out. That's your body's making changes so that it can stay in homeostasis, but perform better. When you are doing lots of high intensity type work, you're going to start getting those biochemical adaptations. You need those. You know, a lot of those biochemical adaptations are what we think of when we talk about race form. But they put your body out of balance. And if you try to perpetuate them, at some point you're going to go into overtraining. And if you really push it, you are going to go into burnout. So it is important to maintain, and I think I'm finally getting to answering this question, but um, our, our listener, that's basically what he was talking about. He didn't have as much time to train, so he was doing more high intensity his performance was good because he was getting all those biochemical adaptations, but he was overbalanced on that end. He wasn't doing enough of that slower, easier work. 
and he got way out of homeostasis and, and it very quickly pushed him towards burnout. Mm -hmm. So you need to work both. Structural changes are measured in years, and that's why we say it takes a long time to hit your peak form. Right. When you are starting to do those biochemical adaptations, think of it as a timer just started. And mm -hmm. at some point, you need to let them clear. Chris just flipped over our five-minute timer. <laughs> you have a little more time than that? Yes, but the clock is ticking. So how do you get yourself out of burnout? That, again, we could probably do a whole episode explaining burnout. Mm -hmm. Probably a couple episodes explaining burnout. And then a whole other episode on the art of getting out of burnout. Mm -hmm. And the the first answer to that question is it is how deep into burnout are you it sounds like it seems like it would be a very individual process it is very individual and there is a timing thing um yeah i can tell you from my own experience if i pick up on it really early and take some rest i can get myself out of that path in a couple of days mm -hmm. the deeper you go the longer it takes and you do mm -hmm. at a certain point so you know when we're talking about getting out of a couple of days that's more overtraining Right. And there is a difference between overtraining and burnout. Uh, once you get into true burnout, we're talking months to your season is over mm -hmm. to, uh, I personally had the experience of severe burnout mm -hmm. and it was several years before I was able to get back to regular training. It can yeah. really take you yeah. apart. So really what we're talking about now and in answering the question, we're talking more about getting out of overtraining. Sure. So you don't, unless you have a really good idea of how deep you went, which you often don't, there is just a bit of art here. There, You basically have to take rest. And look, one of the symptoms or one of the things that happens to athletes when they're, they're getting into that overtrained state that really can lead to bad decision making is it's not like now all of a sudden you just suck. And every time you go out, mm. you suck. Right. Until you're deep into burnout, you're going to have some days you're going to go out and feel awful. You're going to go have some days where you're going to go out. And because your body is trying to compensate, you are going to put out some of the best numbers you've seen. Mm -hmm. And that's you're a problem. Te you're teetering on the edge there. Right. Yeah. And that's a problem. People go, well, I felt bad. I felt bad. But boy, I went out and did these intervals yesterday and that was the best numbers I've seen. And then they convince themselves, no, I'm not overtrained. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dangerous and place to be. It's a very dangerous place to be. So you need some sort of consistency. So if I know an athlete has gone pretty deep into burnout, um, I start with, look, we're just going to take a week. You're going to do nothing hard. We're going to start with several days, no training at all. Then we're going to get back to easy training. This is hour, hour and a half going out on the bike path, getting passed by people on commuter bikes. <laughs> and it's tough. You want to go hard. Even when you start feeling like you're ready to go hard, don't. And I will do that until they've had several rides in a row where they go, I felt pretty good. Then we'll do a test where I'll have them do a longer ride. Because I have found if you're still, often if you're still in an overtrained state, you can go out, do an hour fine. You go out and try to do three hours, all mm -hmm. of a sudden you feel lousy. Mm -hmm. If they can go out and do that three-hour ride and feel good, then I'll have them take another day off. And then we'll attempt a moderate interval session and again, see how it goes. And even following that whole routine, I've had that where they'll do the interval session. They'll feel good. Wait a couple of days. We'll do another interval session. They don't feel so good. Then they try to do something on the weekend and, and they're back in burnout. It, it really is an art form. And I would say the, the one rule here is generally you're going to have to rest a lot longer than you want. And then you think you have to. Yeah. When you're, you've gone really into burnout, 
I'll do all that. And then it's now we need to do a couple weeks of structural work. We are going to clear out all those biochemical adaptations. We're going to go right back to basically base training, focus on work that's tends to produce more of the, the structural. And look, in a couple of weeks, you're not going to get any significant structural changes. Mm-hmm. But it's more allowing you to train so that you don't detrain too much without doing too much that's going to produce or bring back all those biochemical mm-hmm. out of mm-hmm. homeostasis type adaptations. Mm-hmm. And when at that point, you're looking at from when we started resting to when you're going to be ready to race again. It could be a month. Mm-hmm. It could be longer. Right, right. Finally, so... The question was about how do you get out of it, but again, you think about the injury model. It's great to explain to somebody how to deal with an injury, but it's even better to explain to them how to prevent the injury in the first place. And one of the best ways to prevent ever burning out or even going dramatic, you know, going into that dysfunctional overtraining is a when you start doing that high end work that that, that autonomic stress producing type training. Um, a, put on a timeline. So I like to say six weeks to really hit that peak form. I really don't want to keep you in this type of training mode for more than about nine weeks. You know, sometimes you extend a little longer, but then we have to take a longer rest. So you plan a point where you say, I am then going to rest. I'm going to go back to a period of time and doing more base type work. And certainly when we had Joe Freeland here, he said at certain points in the season, you need to return to doing those long, steady, base-type, yes. mile-type rides. Yep. Planning that, planning those several points in a season where you return to that. You let the race form come down a little bit and then rebuild. That's going to allow you to get through a very long season with hopefully avoiding any sort of overtraining. And keep in mind, each time you rebuild, you're going to come back quicker. Mm-hmm. So it takes lots and less time to get back to that peak form. Right. Very good. Our next question comes from a Chris Dudko via Twitter, and this has to do with inflammation. He asks, what's the health difference between the inflammation caused by a hard workout versus inflammation from poor diet? I really love this question. It's a great question. I love this question. We've got it because we've been talking about inflammation and some of the changes in mindset about it. There was a point where any inflammation was bad, and you need to do everything to stop inflammation. And and when you look back at the 80s and 90s, that was the time of you should be taking anti-inflammatories every morning Mm because that's going to help your training. Uh, So now we've discovered that actually, we did an episode on this, the adaptation process, What when we're talking about the adaptation process, we're talking about how your body handles training to trying to figure out how to define this without using the word adapt. Uh, but after you've done a lot of training, how your body makes you bigger and stronger. So that's, that's what we're talking about with adaptation. So inflammation is central to that. Our immune system is responsible for it. So now uh, a lot of the science is saying inflammation is good. You don't want to stop inflammation. So we don't want to go too far the other way. We don't want to sit now and say all inflammation is good for you. That's not the case either. Mm-hmm. So there, are, there is good inflammation where the, the immune system is functioning properly, and there's bad inflammation where the immune system is not functioning properly. Even talking about adaptations, you do the right level of training stress, and that's going to produce inflammation, but that's going to produce most primarily beneficial inflammation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do you overtrain, that inflammation will become aberrant. It become excessive, and you can actually get uh, kind of an exercise version of sepsis. Mm. which is not good for you. Mm-hmm. 
so even there, good inflammation gone too far, it can become bad inflammation. Sure. When we're talking about inflammation from diet, that's generally a bad thing. Um, now, granted, food is exogenous. It's not part of your body. So whenever you absorb food, there actually is a slight inflammatory process because your body, your, your immune system responds to anything that mm -hmm. is foreign. Anything that's entering your body, yeah. But it should be quite temporary and it should be pretty minor. One of the issues, and, and we aren't going to go deep in this because this is a really complex subject and we have touched on this before, but one of the issues with the standard Western diet is it's, it's highly inflammatory. There has been more and more research coming out lately showing that cancer, heart disease, autoimmune disease, they all are preceded by inappropriate um, chronic inflammation. And, and this is my bias, but I think one of the biggest sources of that chronic inappropriate inflammation is diet. So where you want to allow the inflammatory process to happen with your, your uh, adaptations, you don't want inflammation from diet. You want to limit inflammatory type foods. Before you go there, the next question is probably going to help you explain a little bit more about the inflammatory process because we've got a Trish, Patricia Nickel, uh, down at the University of Colorado Denver campus, it looks like, and she has a question for us. I thought that episode 82 was fantastic. It left me wondering, is there a distinction between anti-inflammatory foods and anti-inflammatory pills? Or between antioxidants in foods and antioxidants in pills. I am convinced that one should not take pills after training, but surely one doesn't need to avoid eating turmeric and blueberries. What do you think, Trevor? Yeah, that's a great question. That, that's exactly where I was heading with the previous question. So just like there is infl inflammation that is appropriate and inflammation that is not and can, can lead to disease, you can say the same thing about stuff that you put in your body. So first of all, let's, let's take a step back and say anti-inflammatory food is really a marketing term. Really what they're talking about is food that doesn't cause inappropriate inflammation. So I would say most natural food that we would refer to as healthy is by nature not inflammatory food. So you can turn around and say, well, that's anti-inflammatory. So anti-inflammatory is fruits, vegetables, things like that. Um, and no, you, of course you should not be avoiding those foods. Those foods are not going to harm the adaptation process, quite the, quite the opposite. They tend to be very nutrient-dense foods that your body needs uh, for that repair process. Uh, in terms of antioxidants, that gets a little more complicated. Again, what, 20 years ago, they were big on athletes should be taking lots of antioxidants because uh, training produces a lot of ROS, produces a lot of uh, oxidative stress. So you want to reduce that. But again, we found out that's actually important to the adaptation process. Further, our body produces natural antioxidants. There was a fantastic study that we talked about re on a recent episode where they showed that very high-level cyclists, when they're doing a grand tour or a big stage race, even though they're producing huge amounts of, of ROS, so reactive oxygen species, the net oxidative stress in their body actually reduces because their natural antioxidants yeah. 
are so effective that, that it actually almost overcompensates. So you want to develop those systems. And if you are supplementing with huge amounts of, um, uh, of antioxidants, your body kind of goes, well, you're providing it to me, so I don't need to learn how to do this myself, Right. which you don't want. That said, your body does rely on some exogenous antioxidants. There are a lot of other health benefits to these foods, and it will use those antioxidants. It expects them. We, we evolved around eating fruits and vegetables, which contain a lot of antioxidants. Um, so, no, our body needs those. Eating those foods that contain some antioxidants are not going to harm the adaptation process. Taking big antioxidant supplements, it's the same difference between that you know, an anti-inflammatory diet, again, a marketing term is good for you, but pounding the Tylenol after every workout is not going to help your adaptations. Mm -hmm. This episode was sponsored by Aftershocks, the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can hear your music and your surroundings. Aftershocks is a must-have headphone for cyclists providing the ultimate level of safety and comfort without compromising sound quality. To learn more and save 50 bucks on Aftershocks bundles, visit aftershocks.com. That's A F T E R S H O K Z.com and use code FASTTALK. Let's move away from inflammation and towards Grand Fondos. This question comes from, and apologies if this is not the correct pronunciation, but Zimbo Budowins. For context, I'll explain what he's doing, or probably has already done. He writes, this summer I'm planning to participate in a Grand Fondo with 7,400 meters of climbing. Now, 7,400 meters of climbing is a lot of climbing. We're not certain if it's 7,400 meters or feet, but let's go with a lot of climbing for this individual. Your guide on designing a training program seems to adhere to a polarized training distribution, and most of what I've been reading on training lately takes the same approach. However, during this Grand Fondo, I will not be competing against anyone but myself. There will be no sprints for the finish line or attacks to follow. If all goes well and I have the right gears, I will not exceed my FTP the entire day. Instead, if I'm not descending, I will be spending all my pedaling time at around 85 to 90% of my FTP, so I suppose this is high tempo to sweet spot. In this scenario, does it make sense to spend more time training at this specific intensity at the expense of time above LT, lactate threshold, and below aerobic threshold? Or will adhering to the polarized approach increase my fitness across the board and therefore also in this tempo sweet spot zone? Trevor? So I love this question for a couple of reasons. First, a criticism that we've received and very fairly is sometimes we focus way too much on racers. Right. Uh, we know a lot of a lot of you out there are not racers, and we need to recognize that a lot more. And I love the fact that we have somebody coming to us saying, "I want the challenge to do in a Grand Fondo, but I'm not there to race it. I don't really care about my sprint at the end. I'm there to enjoy the experience and to challenge myself. And that's a that's a that's fantastic. And this is a challenging Grand Fondo. Did we say it was 7,400 meters or feet? It's meters is what was written. So if it is, that's massive. 
So I'm, I'm going to guess he meant <laughs> 7,400 feet. You know, <laughs> for the average rider, enough. that's a lot of feet. No, that's, that's huge. That, that's, that this is a big challenging event and kudos to, to Zimbo for, for doing this. To answer his question, we get into something else that I, I love to discuss. And look, there is not a right or wrong answer on this one, but it's that question of specificity versus systems. And most coaches are going to be biased one way or the other. I don't think anybody's going to be just one or just the other, but be biased. So meaning when you talk about specificity, that's the, the, the argument is the best training for an event or, an, or a race is the event or the race. So you simulate what you are going to race or ride in your training. So if you're going to a Grand Fondo with 7,400 meters, you'd be doing a lot of rides that are 60 to 100 miles in length with a lot of climbing in them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. simulate the event. The flip side is the systems argument, which is the focus your training on building your energy systems as, as effectively as possible. Um, so I call it Build build as good an engine as you can and let the engine figure out the event. Right, right. I tend to be, look, there's a huge value to specificity, but I tend to be biased more towards the system side. Mm -hmm. Where I bring in specificity is looking at what are you doing? Are you somebody who just enjoys these recreational long rides or are you a a high-level crit rider? Mm -hmm. You need different energy systems for those. Mm -hmm. So where I get into the specificity is... Which energy systems do you need to focus on and which are less important? And certainly we've had Sebastian Weber on here who's pointed out the fact that at a certain point, developing one comes at the expense of the other. Right. And so you need to be aware of that. And that's relevant to this question because if you're doing a Grand Fondo and you're not there to race it, you know, Sebastian Weber talks about the VO2 max versus VLA max. VO2 max is that measure of uh, really simplified how good is your aerobic system. VLA max is a way of looking at how strong is your anaerobic system. Mm-hmm. So for our listener here, he doesn't need a good VLA max. Right. What he needs to focus on is that aerobic side. So mm-hmm. he needs to focus on those energy systems. So again, the question is, he brought up, should he just be going out doing a ton of sweet spot at about the intensity he's going to do the event, or is there a better way to train? Mm -hmm. And this is where I'm going to give you my bias, right? which is, yes, you train at the intensity you're going to do the event, you are going to improve those energy systems. But the question is, is that the best way to improve those energy systems? And I would argue that actually there are better ways where you can get even greater gains in those energy systems, potentially with less stress to your body, less likelihood of of pushing burnout and those sorts of issues. And so, again, that's where I would say, what's the best way to target those aerobic energy systems? And that's where I would say, early in your base, I think doing a lot of slower endurance work, you don't need to be doing, and, and I just felt, Frank, Overton shudder a little, <laughs> but um, I would say during the base, just lots of slow volume. Mm-hmm. You can build that aerobic system without a lot of stress. That said, yes, if you're going to be doing a Grand Fonda like this, at some point you need to be doing some long sweet spot rides. But my argument is I wouldn't have my athletes start doing those until a little closer to the event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say the event was in May. 
I would say let's start bringing in some sweet spot work in, in March. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly December, January, February, just go out, get some volume, ride easier. Don't, don't, you don't need that added stress. What about in this scenario, should people just say, yeah, I don't need to do another interval the rest of the year? So that's again, are you just trying to get through the event? Are you trying to, are you racing yourself? Do you want to see how quickly you can do this? Do, are you concerned about, you know, there's 7,400 meters of climbing there. You can't do all that at, at, you know, at some point. I'm sure those climbs get steep enough that you're going to have to go a little bit hard. Right, right. So it's it's how well do you want to get through this event? But even when we're talking about the energy systems, we had that whole conversation about how everything is funneled through one pathway. And I'm not going to throw out the term. You know the term. <laughs> everything kind of funnels through one pathway, but you can hit it from multiple directions. Right. And it's additive, almost a multiplier. So even though this athlete is really focused on really just almost one system that really needs to be developed, I would still say doing some high-intensity work is going to be a benefit for him. Just maybe stay, instead of doing Tabatas or sprints sure. or, or really high-intensity stuff, do some threshold work, maybe even some, some VO2 max, like four or five-minute interval type mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's ultimately going to, you, you will see, it's going to speed him up even doing steady endurance work. And when he hits those hard climbs where it gets over 10%, he's going to appreciate having that sort of sort of development. Mm-hmm. All right. Moving on to our next question, which pertains to the all-important heart. So this uh, listener out there writes, I raced in my first crit this past weekend, and my average heart rate was 190 beats per minute for 25 minutes. Yikes. The maximum heart rate I saw was 202. I think I was on top of my hydration, so I don't think dehydration was to blame. It was hot out, but cooler than temperatures I've been routinely riding in, so I don't think it was heat stress. I don't think over-caffeination was a significant variable either. I only got a burning sensation in my legs for a brief period of time during the race, and I didn't feel, quote, worked the following day. I even did a three-hour ride that day at 70% of Uh, max heart rate. Although it was a heart effort, I don't think my effort was causing the heart rate. I mean, I've experienced what a 95 plus percent of heart rate max effort feels like, and that wasn't it. My best guess is that my nerves were causing the increase, but still, it seems odd that I would be able to perform for that duration with that average heart rate. It also seems unhealthy to do so. Any thoughts on this? That's not normal, right? Trevor, is this normal? Great question. Whole bunch of things that we can kind of dive into with this one. And I hope Chris uh, throws in some thoughts on this one as well. First, I'm just going to address the the nature of a crit because some people are really surprised by this. But seeing higher than what you're used to heart rates in a crit is actually quite normal. I have seen my athletes be able to average for an hour criterium higher heart rates than what they can do in a 30-minute all-out time trial. Uh, nature of a crit you go through corners and you're sprinting out of each corner and then you're, you stop pedaling for a bit. So if you look at your average power, it's actually not going to be that impressive. But heart rate's slow to respond. So all those little efforts are going to keep driving heart rate up and up and up and up. And those rests in between those corners, which is going to bring your average power down, your heart rate really doesn't have time to respond. So in a criterion, if you're not used to crits, 
and you do one and you look at your average heart rate relative to your average power, you're going to see something very unusual for you. And that's actually quite normal in a crit. I thought she was very perceptive and also pointing out the fact this was her first race. Crits are a little bit scary. I'm mm -hmm. certain stress was a big factor here. So I'm going to give a big qualifier here that if you ever start seeing abnormal things with your heart and you are worried, yes, go see your doctor. Mm -hmm. But just based on her description, I haven't seen any files. I haven't yet heard something. I'm going, wow, that's a giant red flag to me. Right, right. And she did uh, do a good job of sort of giving the context yeah. with the, the temperature, which can affect things, state of hydration, which can affect things, caffeine, which can affect things, etc. So she she's thinking in the right way to try to walk through a potential, like a diagnostic type right. scenario. There are a lot of things that can affect heart rate. She, You just gave her list, which was actually a pretty comprehensive list. Fatigue and overtraining can also really affect your, your heart rate. Uh, when you're really overtrained, it gets depressed. But often when you're very early stages and, and you have some muscle damage, that's going to drive heart rate up. Right. One, I've had people come back to me and say, something is really wrong with my heart rate. Look at this. I was hitting 220 beats per minute. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's really simple explanations, like yeah. your jersey flapping. <laughs> right, or the zipper. Yeah, sometimes going by power lines. Of course, those are typically short-lived. The shirt flapping on descents, sometimes it'll set it off into an erratic pattern, and it kind of stays there, but usually they end. So, yeah, to have it for 25 minutes average, uh, something was going on. And, and it, like you said, it, it sounds like... The stress of the race, the race itself, we're contributing here. And I don't also see, neither of us are cardiologists, mind you, but there are no red flags here. So thank you. And we're going to keep giving these qualifiers. We are not cardiologists. Or electrophysiologists. Or any of this. But I will say when I am, if I'm looking for signs that, boy, something's off, you need to see a doctor. What you're really looking for is an increase or change in the heart rate where there's just really no explanation. And particularly, you look at the, you download the file, you look at the profile and go, that's just kind of a strange looking heart rate. Mm -hmm. So, yes, her heart rate was higher than she expected, but you can still say for a crit and everything else. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's not, boy, there's zero explanation for this. If she were 75, and she was seeing 200 heart rate, that'd be cause for concern. If she's, right. it sounds like she's probably not 75. So this is within normal range of what you would expect to see. Right. So this is, you're looking for things like heart rate suddenly shoots up and comes down for no explanation. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, some people with AFib, yes, intensity sets it off. So you're going to see a rise in heart rate, but then all of a sudden it just shoots up. They can typically feel it. Yes. And even when they stop pedaling, right, it, it stays elevated. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so not only is it high, but you're looking at going, that's really odd. Like it almost looks, you, 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 the, the question, if you're starting to wonder, boy, is my, my, my computer working? Yeah, right, right. Yep. But that's a telltale. If there's shortness of breath, if there's fluttering inside the chest, all of these things that are kind of inexplicable and, and just abnormal, those are definitely things to take, pay attention to and consider. In some cases, certainly go straight to, uh, the emergency room if, if it, if it warrants it. Others, you know, monitor it, um, 
and uh, take notes and and keep those files for later use if need be. You know, you, reading your stories in in the Haywire Heart, yes. Thank you. I, I don't ever remember a description of one of the athletes who went into AFib or, or had some sort of an issue saying, oh, I just riding long, everything felt fine. I just looked down at my heart rate monitor and it seemed odd. There was usually something felt off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or something precipitated it, like a super hard effort that it triggered it and then it, it it stayed elevated or began to flutter. And, and yeah, it was definitely, quote, an off feeling at that point. So all this being said, again, if you are concerned, go see your doctor. But if you're in a race and your heart rate is high but consistent with the efforts, but it's five, ten beats higher than what you normally expect, don't be immediately concerned that you have a heart condition. Very good. All right, our next question comes from a Mickey, and they uh, pertain to the recovery period between Tabata sets. So her question I'm wondering about 13 by 30 second work intervals and 15 second rest intervals and three minutes of rest between sets. This is in a Tabata workout. If a person was following a polarized training model and was seeking maximum gains from this workout, then would removing the three minutes of rest between sets be best or simply trying to pedal harder during each work interval? Please assume that both options would include me riding at about 120% of my FTP. This is another one which where at some point we should do a full episode just on the recovery period between intervals. Mm-hmm. I know. Uh, Such a simple thing, I guess, or uh, uh, something that people probably don't put much thought into, but pretty important. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you I used to uh, be pretty confident in my opinion on this. I have. I am now at the point of I'm actually not exactly certain where I stand. Yeah. I used to be very much of the mindset of Recovery length is everything. So if I went out and did sets and I had an eight-minute recovery between my sets and I got back to where I was going to start doing my intervals at 7.52, I would sit there for eight seconds to get my exact eight minutes, which is kind of ridiculous. But that's how obsessive I I used to be about it. We've had guests on the show who will describe intervals and not give a Mm -hmm. recovery period. And later on reach out to them because we got asked we got questions yeah, emailed yeah. to us and i said what's the recovery period for this like they're coming well, whatever whatever feels right <laughs> right right yeah i think that that is probably sometimes frustrating for people because they want instruction and they want to do it right but if it's kind of this vague thing then they don't know exactly what to do um so this athlete asked about this is the interval particular intervals here are what are called tabata style intervals So they are high intensity. They are above your VO2 max. And he's asking about it in the context of polarized training. So I just quickly need to add a note here that when Dr. Seiler really described the polarized training model, his high intensity work was at VO2 max intensity between um, kind of lactate threshold and VO2 max intensity. And one of the episodes we asked him about that, should you be doing higher intensity? Cycling is a bit of a unique sport where you need that. And he said, sure, those Tabata-style intervals have a value, but did say do it for about six weeks. They aren't something you should start doing in December and do all year round. And right. this is, we already probably now have coaches that are writing us saying, you're dead wrong. And again, <laughs> this is art of coaching. Everybody has different opinions and seen everything work. But I'm just telling you on the polarized model, um, this is not your go-to all year round interval. This is that pinch of salt. 
Yes. Yes, thank you, but that's quality. That's I know. I'm mixing my uh, <laughs> physiological metaphors here. <laughs> but talking about the recovery length between sets, again, I, I don't. I'm still trying to figure out where I stand. But my answer is depends on the energy system you are targeting. So when you are talking about your aerobic system, where you're really trying to train your body's ability to use oxygen, you are talking about the Krebs cycle, you're talking about electron transfer chain. Um, these, the Krebs cycle is very slow to ramp up. So I actually, when I have athletes do threshold intervals, I give them very short recoveries because uh, we don't want it to let them to recover so much that you then have wasted time where you're getting the aerobic system ramped up again. So mm -hmm. for example, I love to give my athletes five by five minute intervals. I have a one minute recovery. Mm. If they're, they're doing four by eights, I give them a two minute recovery. So it's relatively short recoveries and aerobic system doesn't deplete really rapidly. So it just doesn't need that long recovery. When you're doing work like Tabata's that really hit a lot of your anaerobic energy systems, it's completely different, completely different. Anaerobic system is very quick to respond. But those reserves deplete quickly, and they're very slow to recharge. So you take the extreme with a sprint. You, you go and watch track sprinters. So they'll get on the track, they'll do one sprint, and then they'll lie in the grass for four minutes. <laughs> because they, they, they want that phosphocreatine system to fully recharge, and it takes a long time. So no, I would say doing sets of these Tabatas and saying, let's just skip the rest in between and do them all in a row. Very quickly, you are going to, and Tabata's kind of hit both your aerobic and your anaerobic. So it's not a pure anaerobic workout, but you're still using a lot of those anaerobic pathways. And if you don't have that recovery, um, your intensity is going to drop. You're going to start hitting the wrong energy systems. So I actually would say, do your set. When I do Tabata's, the, the harder they are, the shorter the set is. So like I do 20 tens and I just do four or five minutes and then I'll take like a 10 minute rest let the full anaerobic system recharge and then hit it again. Mm -hmm. Very good. Something that Trevor is not fully mm, planted. He doesn't have all the research done on this one. That's, that's rare. Boy, you make me sound like I actually know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, I mean, no, this is one of those areas where it sounds like there's still uh, a lot to be learned. I, I personally would say so. I'm I'm just fascinated by it. So you know, I would say with you're with fascinated all, by the it, the rest period between intervals. That's amazing. <laughs> what does that say? But going back to your previous point, look there. There's there's things that I am am certain about. There are things that I have no clue about, and there are things that I have no clue about, but pretend I know something about. <laughs> I am not going to tell you the percent ratios. <laughs> yes, of those three things. Understood. We will keep your secrets secret. All right. The next question. This one will take a little bit of uh, a setup. Uh, it comes from Greg Bowerman. I want to just give you the context, but I think it's an interesting question, and Trevor's going to have a fascinating answer for us. He writes, I'm an amateur racer, 61 years old. I'm on my second coach, and he is a good one. After four or five years of making marginal gains in threshold, under the guidance of my new coach, gains have gone up markedly. He has me training an average of 14 hours each week. 
I'm retired and I can afford to rest like a pro. Ah, the life. This month concludes what was, what has been three months of twice weekly efforts where I maintain a given power for a given duration with the goal of keeping the normalized power as close as possible to average power. I always wear a heart rate monitor and I do see the cardiac drift referred to by Trevor and why he is more a proponent of doing longer base training rides using heart rate zones as opposed, as opposed to power zones. I realize everybody is different, but blanket statements on the subject of long, steady, low-intensity rides like Trevor's regarding heart rate monitoring as compared to my current coach's recommendation of the opposite of power monitoring has me inquiring as to the significance of cardiac drift. Is cardiac drift justification for Trevor's opinion? So he says, my current coach is using a threshold value, FTP, in training peaks that is about 7% less than my actual FTP. This seems to be the biggest difference in what is enabling greater gains in fitness now as compared to my to previous when, if anything, my entered FTP value was equivalent or slightly greater than reality. All of this boils down to my contention that current recommendations for establishing FTP and the use of this value in the likes of training peaks is what is flawed and not the use of power itself to gauge workouts. What do you think? What are your thoughts on this contention, asks Greg. Trevor? So I'm actually going to go to the, the final part of this question, the, what he brought up about FTP. Let's start there, and then I'll get to the actual main question that he asked. In terms of determining FTP, I'm actually going to give some, some credit to some of these training tools. So he mentioned Training Peaks, which is my primary tool for coaching my athletes. I actually, I use their desktop version called WKO. I've actually been quite impressed how good their estimate of FTP is. And this is based on, I get a lot of my athletes in the lab to be properly tested. And when I look at what their, their lab F, FTP is or threshold. Sure. And, um, what the, the approximate is on, on training peaks. Quite often training peaks have been right on. Mm -hmm. But I do agree with his point that Obviously, getting your FTP accurate is the best thing to do, but if you can't be accurate, it is better to have it a little too low than a little too high. If it's a little too high, you are setting yourself up for failure. You can start hitting the wrong energy system. It's going to be hard to complete your intervals. And no, we've talked about this before. Intervals are about effective execution. It's not harder is always better. We need to get out of that, that, that mindset. That's why, even though we, we've brought up many times in the past that doing short interval work is better by power, I personally, with my athletes, will, will never have them do it purely by power. I'll spend a lot of time describing to them what the interval should feel like wherever possible. I'll help them use heart rate as a bit of a guide because if we have that FTP wrong, if we have those zones a little wrong, you need to know, you need to be able to identify that and still figure out how to execute the intervals right. That, that was a tangent. Let's get to the main part of his question about cardiac drift. Mm -hmm. Well, I should probably quickly define that. Yeah. So simplest explanation is cardiac drift is a dis disassociation between power and heart rate. So the idea being if you went out and rode at 180 watts um, after that initial slow rise in your heart rate, what you would normally see is a very consistent heart rate relative to that wattage. Right. If you ride long enough, at some point, they're, they're going to stop staying parallel. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so if you stayed at 180 watts, heart rate would start rising. You're going to start working harder. Your heart's going to start working harder to, right. to maintain the same power output. Right. Conversely, if you stayed at the same heart rate, your power is going to drop. Correct. And so that's part of what he, actually, before we get to that, uh, he, he did mention, uh, I think he mentioned dehydration, but there's a couple causes of cardiac drift. One of the most common is dehydration. Mm-hmm. Because if you start to dehydrate, your blood volume reduces. So in order to deliver the same blood supply to your working muscles, your heart has to start beating faster. But another cause is actually muscle fatigue. Even your slow twitch muscles can eventually start to fatigue. They start to experience damage. So in order to produce the same power to do the same amount of work, you need to recruit more muscle fibers. The number of muscle fibers being used is one of the drivers of heart rate. So heart rate will start to increase. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting for me to learn more about this um, from a personal uh, perspective when we started training that year for Dirty Kanza, when on my initial long, slow rides, I was getting massive cardiac drift. My body was mm-hmm. was having to work uh, uh, much harder to produce the same amount of power. But then on the day of Dirty Kanza, it seemed like I had come a long way in my training, but huge ride. Dehydration was certainly, probably, certainly, probably, most likely an issue because there's just only so much you can do. And fatigue, muscle fatigue was uh, obvious. So, but the cardiac drift was much lower. So this is something that you can improve. It's really something you can train. And you talk to a lot of pro athletes and they'll, they'll say, this is one of those things that's really critical that not a lot of people talk about. But let's go back to that, that question. When you go out and do these long rides and you're going to experience some cardiac drift, should you be doing it by power or should you be doing it by heart rate? And look, from this point forward, you're getting my bias. There's coaches on both sides, there's very good coaches on both sides of this. So if I'm convincing, great. If not, go by power. <laughs> but my bias is you should be doing these rides by heart rate. Tell us why. Quite simply, again, uh, I talked about I am a train the energy systems type coach. I'm, and at the end of the day, power is not physiological. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell what's going on in your body. Uh, Heart rate is. So what drives that increase in in heart rate? As I said, as you have damage, you start recruiting more muscle fibers. Another thing that drives it is is increases in mitochondrial activity will drive up heart rate. But that's as a result of of increase in, in fiber recruitment. So the issue is if you stay at a steady power, Physiologically, your body is moving, in my opinion, through training zones, through energy systems. And so you are training something different, even though the power is the same. If your heart rate goes up 20 beats per minute over the course of that ride, you are are doing a different training ride than you were at the start. Mm -hmm. This is all very logical, Trevor. I hope so. (laughs) I'd like to say so. If you do it by heart rate, even though your power plummets, that's because your body's lost a huge amount of efficiency. It's dealing with damage. But in terms of the, the stress on your body, the systems you're training, power might have dropped, but the body's still training effectively the same systems, in my opinion. Right. And those are kind of the gains you want to see because you want to be able to bring up those systems in right. a sense. Right. Exactly. So the couple exceptions here are if you're doing a long ride in the heat, 
dehydration is a big factor. That's going to drive up your heart rate. So that's where you can be a little more liberal and letting your heart rate come up. That said, if it's coming way up, you're probably really dehydrated mm -hmm. and you need to address that. Right. Uh, the other place is as you're getting into the season, if you're a racer, racers don't say, oh, we're all getting tired. Let's drop our power. Mm -hmm. Power stays up often. It gets harder at the end of the race. So it's good to do these long rides and then at some point just say, screw my heart rate. Let's do some efforts <laughs> and get that specificity. Yep. Very good. Well, that was another episode of Fast Talk. One last time, we'll remind you, please check out our survey, fastlabs.com slash survey. As always, we love your feedback. You can leave us comments in the survey. You can email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com. Be sure to subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment there as well. Fast Talk is a joint production between Vela News and Fast Labs. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.